Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, May 6th. Just a quick programming note for all of you listeners. Hopefully, you all have been enjoying the deep dives we have been doing here on the Mini Break podcast, looking at the careers of some of our favorite players from tennis's past. We've broken down the five-year primes of players like Monica Seles, Venus Williams, Justine Ennin, Pete Sampras, Yvonne Lendl. Stefan Edberg, and so many more. And I had teased yesterday on Twitter that I was going to be doing just that again today, that I was going to be talking about the career of Juan Carlos Ferrero. But we're actually going to push that Juan Carlos Ferrero discussion to later on in the week. I'm going to have my doubles partner, partner in crime, and one of our many co-hosts here at Cracked Rackets, Maxwell LaBauer Rothman, join me on that later pod to discuss his career, put it in perspective compared to some of the other comparable careers that we've seen from players over the past 20 years. You know, a guy like Juan Carlos Ferrero, who has one slam title, the obvious comparison, you look at a guy like Marin Cilic, who also just has the one slam title. And, you know, it's an interesting comparison. And you even compare Juan Carlos Ferro, who is really, really good for a three-year straight, you know, a top five, maybe even a top three player during his three-year prime, and compare that to someone with the longevity of Tomas Burdich, it makes for a fascinating conversation, and it's a conversation I could have by myself, as you all see. I just did, what, 45 seconds on it, but that's just a tease for later on in this week, because Max Rothman's going to be joining me on the podcast to discuss the career of Juan Carlos Ferrero in depth, so be on the lookout for that later in the week. Of course, this podcast and every podcast we do here at the Mini Break is made possible by our friends at Midwest Sports. So let's start today's podcast there. You guys know the deal. Midwest Sports, for more than 20 years, has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. They have one of the top online tennis stores with a tennis warehouse of over 40,000 square feet. Do you know how many rackets of different variety of different sizes, shapes, figures you can fit in a 40,000 square foot uh, warehouse? I'll tell you, it's a lot, and they've got them all. They have a comprehensive selection of fast-shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. They also have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available from shipping to your do- for shipping to your door. Excuse me. They value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court, and maybe you're someone who doesn't know exactly what racket you should be using. Maybe you don't know, hey, is this the right sort of string step? for my style of game. Well, you can rest assured that their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with all sorts of tennis equipment and can help you find that perfect racket, perfect shoe, or perfect pair of tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition. Be sure to visit them on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube to learn of their latest sales and discounts on tennis supplies, or just much more simply, go to their website, MidwestSports.com. Again, whether it's Yonix, Wilson, Nike, uh, Head, Fila, Babylon, a6, whatever it may be, I promise they have what you are looking for on their website. So you go to MidwestSports.com. You're going to like what you see. You're going to want to purchase some gear. All we ask is that you use our promo code CR15 because not only will you get 15% off your order, but you can let them know who sent you there. And, you know, we obviously would appreciate that as they are so supportive of us. The least we can do is support our friends at Midwest Sports. So again, MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off. 
All orders over $75 come with free two-day shipping as well. So be sure to go check out. Uh, the, it's your one-stop shop for all of your tennis shopping needs, MidwestSports.com. Okay, with that being said, let's get into today's news. And again, I'm just going to run through the news because there was so much of it. That was another incentive to saving the Juan Carlos Ferrero discussion for later in the week so I could just focus on the various news stories that emerged uh, yesterday with yesterday, or I should say today, yesterday being Tuesday, uh, because there were a lot of interesting ones, and perhaps the most interesting one, as you guys all hear our dog Quavo race in from the background, apologies for that, uh, but you know, another thing that's finally raced out, the details for the WTA and ATP player funds, and there's been some really good reporting as to speculation of what those packages are going to look like, and the transparency of a lot of the leaders right now in tennis, people like Andrea Gaudenzi, the president of the ATP, Steve Simon, the CEO of the WTA. Player council members, you know, the big three, obviously, of Federer, Djokovic, Nadal on the men's side, but on the women's side, you know, we had her on our podcast, but she's been everywhere. WTA player council rep Christiane and, you know, just everyone around the WTA have been, you know, there's been a lot of transparency. They're trying to make clear what they're trying to do, the sort of resources they are making available to all of the players. And in a joint announcement between the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, as well as all of the Grand Slams, all of the people who have a stake in this announcement, uh, the tour, you know, it was a joint statement and they finally released the official details of the player relief fund. I'm going to read that statement for all of you now. Uh, The governing bodies of world tennis have come together to raise in excess of U.S. $6 million. Sorry for giving you the specifics. They were just letting me know. To raise $6 million to create a player relief program aimed at supporting players who are particularly affected by the ongoing impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's start there. Considering how many different vested interests, how many different governing bodies there are in world tennis, it is good to just see from the beginning that they came together. And yes, $6 million, we'll get to that number in a second. But, you know, something is more than nothing. And beforehand, these players had nothing. So to get any sort of relief out to them, that's the start. The statement goes on. The initiative has been has seen the ATP, WTA, the four Grand Slam tournaments, uh, and the ITF unite in a show of support to players who are facing unprecedented challenges due to the global impact of COVID-19. Professional tennis is currently suspended until July 13, 2020, but in addition to contributions of our own, the ATP, WTA will administer the financial distributions of the player relief program, which sees respective contributions from the four Grand Slam tournaments and ITF split equally between men and women. And again, as merger talks continue, as we're trying to figure out the financial impact of the coronavirus, what the tour is going to look like, where the events are going to be, if they are able to come back at all this season, it's good to see that they're already thinking about you know, ensuring that the prize money is being split up equally. And the player relief program will target a total of approximately 800 ATP and WTA singles and doubles players collectively. Uh, This is me editorializing now. We've heard that number repeatedly from people like Christopher Clary of the New York Times, like Reem Abulail, and so many more. So again, that number seems to be right. Good reporting by them. Uh, In need of financial support, eligibility for the player relief program will take into account a player's rankings as well as previous prize money earnings according to criteria agreed by all stakeholders. And yeah, that's where things get a little iffy. That's where they get a little shaky. What is the criteria? Who's deciding if a player meets the criteria or not? You would assume that the player council has a stake in that in uh, ensuring that the right players get the sort of relief they need. It's to ensure that people like, you know, a Kevin 
Anderson who's coming back from injury and Andy Murray, the likes, uh, you know, that sort of player, maybe someone who was formerly top 50, formerly top 20 for a sustained period of time and are just no longer in that portion of their career. You know, the people who are more financial, uh, who are more well off financially ensuring that those players aren't the focus of this just because their ranking meets the criteria, but that the players who are getting the relief are the ones who, you know, financially need it the most. So yes, there's the potential for some issues there in terms of the arbitrary nature of picking who gets the what amount of relief. But, you know, it's again to ensure that people don't take advantage of the system. There is a little bit of regulating going on. So that makes sense. Anyways, the move by the seven stakeholders provides the financial backbone of the program, which oppor- which opportunities for additional contribution with opportunities for of a for additional contributions to follow, excuse me, funds raised through initiatives such as auctions, player donations, virtual tennis games, and more will provide opportunity for further support of the program moving forward and are welcome. Uh, the creation of the player relief program is a positive demonstration of the sport's ability to come together during this time of crisis. Fact check, true. Uh, We will continue to collaborate and monitor the support required across tennis with the aim of ensuring the long-term health of the sport in the midst of this unprecedented challenge to our way of life, and our thoughts remain with all of those affected at this time. And again, what are the key takeaways from this statement? We sort of went through them, but the big one, the eligibility for the player relief program will take into account a player's rankings as well as previous prize money earnings according to criteria agreed by all stakeholders. We just spoke about that. Another one, you know, the number, $6 million, and we've talked about, is that enough? Are there places to find more with Wimbledon taking X amount, you know, over $100 million from the insurance policy? Surely these other Grand Slams have the financial reserves to contribute a little bit more than just, you know, $10,000 to a total of about 800 players. You know, again, it's a little bit less than 10000 It's $6 million. If it's going to help 800 players, we can all do the math. That ends up being a little bit less than 10,000. But uh, the point being, uh, you know, some are suggesting is 6 million not enough? Why aren't the top players distributing more? And we've talked at length about what players like Murray, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal are doing outside of just donating to this player relief fund to help their communities, help all of those impacted by this sort of pandemic. But, you know, uh, Christopher Clary got a quote from Andrea Gaudenzi uh, and his response about this was, you could always argue that, but to be honest, in a year when we have no events coming up to come up with that amount. I think it's a great effort because, to be honest, events are running a big, big loss for this year. The ones who cannot happen, they are losing a lot of money, and I am talking on a daily basis with federations who are laying off people or furloughing people or cutting or that kind of thing. So it's not really a party uh, for everyone here. It's difficult, and the ATP and WTA are not governments in the sense that we can't issue bonds or print money. We also have a responsibility towards our employees and our staffs as well. So it's a tricky business. And again, you start to talk about, um, sure, tennis generates so much revenue across the globe in very different places. But because there's not one unified governing body, all of that that money, all of that uh, revenue doesn't all go to one place to be distributed accordingly. It's the USTA makes money, the LTA makes money, the French Tennis Federation, the Australian Tennis Federation, the Chilean Tennis Federation, the Argentinian Tennis Federation, the Swiss Tennis Federation, the Chinese Tennis Federations. You can go on and on and on and on. They all have their, you know, they all are separate ventures. They're all separate entities. And that's so why, you know, you continue to hear discussions of, well, what we are learning is that there are too many entities in tennis. There are too many conflicting interests. And because of that, there's no one unified body that can, you know, help 
tennis as a sport in a uniform manner get through the sort of global pandemic that affects each corner of the sport, that affects clubs at the local level, that affects players at the local level, coaches at the local level, all the way through to the professionals. And that's why we've seen these merger talks uh, gain in strength as well, right? It's just part of the necessity of the reality that we live in is that clearly it's too unorganized. The formal structures of tennis are not in a place where they can uh, comprehend and I suppose execute through this sort of pandemic because there are too many competing stakes at, uh, interests at stake, excuse me. And so, you know, once again, and this is from Christopher Clary in his piece, Another Tennis Leader Supports Idea of Merging Men's and Women's Tour on the New York, uh, at the New York Times. Steve Simon, the chief executive for the WTA, it makes it him, it makes it CEO of the ATP, uh, Andre Gaudenzi, excuse me, the president. Uh, and that's just another voice, but Steve Simon saying he is in support of merger between the two tours. And here's what he says, I'm not afraid of the full merger. I never have been. I would certainly be the first to support it because I think when you truly have the business and the strategic principles all aligned, which is what you need to do. Uh, obviously, it's first because I think then you truly have the business and the strategic principles all aligned, excuse me, which is what you need to do. Obviously, it's a long and winding road to get there, but I think it makes all the sense in the world. And, you know, they, it continues to be clear. They're not at the finalized talks. There are still so many granular details to emerge. And to quote Steve Simon in this piece, they're at the 10,000 foot level. But, you know, this is clearly as serious as merger talks have gotten since the WTA was formed in 1973 because you have buy-in from both the heads of the tours, WTA and ATP. You have buy-in from clearly the top ranks of players, and so often it's the top ranks of the men's game, the ones who make the most money in the men's game, who are the most resistant to this sort of change. And this is not to typecast all of them, but this is just to typecast people who are making the most money don't want to lose out on making that money. So obviously the financial incentive is there for them to be protective of it. This is not to indict their character. This is just to explain their motives. And if you want to say their motives are an indictment on their character, I'll leave that decision to you personally. Um, but look, you know, Martina Navratilova in this piece, and I don't want to step all over because again, go support journalism, but she says that's why it's never happened before. And it's nice to see this sort of unity for a change in you know, maybe the ATP steps up in this sort of moment. And, you know, you talk about the financial impact, again, to get back to that $6 million number. The ATP has furloughed or reduced hours for about one-third of its 100-plus employees. And, you know, the WTA is cutting executive pay. And so, you know, those aren't you know, people are losing their job because of this. There's clear financial impact already, and yet they still have to worry not just about their own organizations, but about the players who, you know, really provide the lifeblood of those organizations. And so it's interesting, though, because Steve Simon, when talking about this merger, he says it's not a financial necessity. He says this isn't about trying to save the WTA. We'll be fine, but look, if we're going to do the right business thing and we're finally going to bring the sport together, I think the WTA would be very supportive of this concept. And again, he goes on to talk about how just the marketing that could be done together, uh, packaging the TV rights and just ensuring that there's more schedule cohesion and just ensuring that, uh, you know, things run in a smoother fashion. All of those are the potential benefits for both the ATP and the WGA and just professional tennis in general to not have to compete against one another, which is what they're doing right now. Uh, that's obviously, you know, for fans, for partnerships, for sponsorships, all of these different things. And so, yeah, it's clear why, you know, 
not to get all uh, historical with you, but there's a reason monopolies emerge in every industry throughout the course of time because at a certain point when the top people monopolize and work together, they're just going to dominate a specific market because they have uh, the rights, the the possession of the product that people are looking for. And to have a monopoly on tennis under one organization, yes, you'd be able to capitalize on the fact that it's the second most gambled sport on in the world. You'd be able to capitalize on the fact that, you know, metric-wise by who, you know, it's one of the top five most played sports around the globe. It's one of the, you know, you can just, all these things you can focus on together as one unit, one entity, and just, again, be more cohesive. I can't say that or stress that word enough. And I feel like we've talked about this topic at length, so you guys are just now probably grown tired of me repeating the same uh, perspectives. And of course, if you want to hear our thoughts on more of these podca- on more of these topics, go listen to the pods we've done with Ben Rothenberg, John Wertheim, Mark Lucero, uh, even player council member Christian, and just you know all of the players we've talked to about this at length, why it could be beneficial. And of course, there are still concerns. Uh, of course, you'd never want an Andy Murray voice these concerns last week uh, on CNN when he was with Billie Jean King and Christian Amanpour. Uh, when he talked about you absolutely do not you have to ensure that the WTA doesn't get shortchanged, that financially there's no sort of inequality that, you know, men, that, they're, that they just have to make sure that they're protected, right? I mean, they meaning, uh, you know, just the tours, ensure that it's equal amounts of scheduling time for, you know, on TV, equal amounts of broadcast time, equal amounts of tournaments available, equal amounts of prize money available, all of these different things, if they're going to become one cohesive tour, are things you have to work out, and there's a lot of details behind that, and there's going to be a lot of resistance and certainly, um, but again, uh, the, the piece is uh, from Christopher Clary in the New York Times. Another tennis leader supports the idea of merging women's and men's tours. I don't want to step all over the article and just read it verbatim, but it's fantastic. So be sure to go check it out. And you can, again, all find it at nytimes.com. There's also a really good uh, interview with Steve Simon in the Telegraph Women's Sport, uh, so telegraph.co.uk, which I will admit I am not subscribed to, so I couldn't read it, but I know. You know, Steve Simon talks about the merger, uh, and he says, and it's a controversial quote, that financial equality is a long-term goal and that there might be some financial suffering in the more immediate of any sort of merger between the two unions and that that suffering will be, you know, will happen in the near term for the beneficial of the long term. And, you know, is it good that he has a long-term perspective? Might it be healthier for the tennis in, in the long run? I think we've all made the argument for yes, why it would be. I just spent 15 minutes doing that. Um, but but that's probably – I mean, it's not probably. It, it's unacceptable. I mean, there just – there have to be protections in place. We're not going back to 1960s with this merger. We're not just going to reset everything and be like, yeah, but now they're one entity, so it's okay that they're paid a little bit less. No, there's a reason why they – you know, we the fight for equal pay at the slams and the benefits that have – grown because of it uh, all exists so we don't have to relitigate what we we shouldn't be two steps backwards to move a step forward there's no reason for that to need to happen and so again you know um it's just ensuring you know the prize money pools the the one that stands out to me and it's coordinating it is right the year-end finals pool uh last year for the wta was the largest bonus pool even compared to the men's just the largest bonus pool for any event i think in history and the incentives and the wta's entanglement with china is something we've talked about before on this podcast with too many but you know 
why should the men get to dip into that money then no like if if that's it just the problem is if if there's not equality right away things start to get territorial and when things start to get territorial you begin to understand why there hasn't been a merger in the first place why you know the WTA has looked out for women's tennis interests why the ATP has looked out for men's tennis interests and you know the competing interests is part of the problem again and so that sort of pettiness I suppose needs to be left out the window there needs to come in with a clean framework of hey the goal is to ensure equality and better uh, better resources better just a better product for all professional tennis players and all professional tennis fans moving forward and it's again it's great to see that you know Gaudenzi and Steve Simon and, and Federer and Djokovic Serena all of these top uh, and you know just men's and women players and per- personalities I suppose the uh, executives throughout the tennis world seem to be in favor of this so again still it's a tricky issue no doubt about it you can see me stumbling over sentences but uh, clearly we have all of our best minds in tennis thinking about it right now and it's also clear that you know as currently constituted, the prize money is just not acceptable. What this uh, pandemic has put a spotlight on is how many players uh, live, you know, borderline below the poverty line, um, border on, you know, on poverty. Just they're not making money; they're losing money by being professional tennis players. And if that's the case, what's the incentive to? playing professional tennis why would people want to struggle and pay money to just lose matches and not advance and not uh, fulfill their careers and you know provide themselves with any sort of living uh, any sort of income and so you know they there is a piece in ft.com uh, tennis takes a swing at making player earnings fairer and they worked out the percentages 45 percent of men won less than in the t- and this is of the top 500 players 45 uh, percent of the top 500 players last year on the ATP won less than one hundred thousand dollars in prize money 41 percent of the women won less than 50 thousand dollars in prize money and again you know if that was just the income they were taking you know pre you know no there were no taxes it's like okay well you made seventy five thousand dollars oh okay you made fifty thousand dollars that's better than a lot of people do uh in a lot of jobs throughout the country of throughout the world of course uh, but think about the expenses that go into being a professional tennis player think about all the flights you have to catch all the stringing you have to do booking court time and sh- just you know all these various things and especially because you know the revenue uh that these players are generating and sponsorship isn't big it's not like they're getting thousands of rackets sent to them for free thousands of strings they don't have to worry about any of their food costs or any of their health care costs, uh, you know, any of their coaching costs. It's not like, you know, for the majority of players, they're not getting free co- coaching from their tennis federation. They're not having someone with them on the road. There's no physio. There's no nutritionist. Any expense they, any sort of supplemental help they want like that, they're paying for out of their own pocket. And, you know, just again, that's these numbers are, are horrifying and it shows about the distribution, how much of the money is being, uh, you know, the uh, the big money is being made by the top players and how that skews the data uh, because you look at it and, you know, I think it's the annual prize money for the top players. You get from, like, players 1 to 20, and it's slightly over a million dollars. And then just beyond that, you know, the 250th ranked player won $124,000 for the men. The 250th ranked player won $80,000 for the women. Once again, you see the pay disparity between those two numbers, but Part B... And even, you know, at the top of the game, Nadal was the top ranked in 2019. He won 16.4 million euros. Barty won $11.3 million. I don't know why they use different symbols for those two, but again, that just symbolizes the fact that um, you have the pay at the bottom of the game, and uh, this isn't news to anyone, but 
it's not great. And, you know, we've heard, again, players like Chilich and players like Nadal and just so many come out and say, yeah, maybe we do need to freeze the income at the top tournaments and distribute that a little bit better throughout the tours. And, again, it's clear that just everything is on the table, and I thought this article did a really good job with facts and figures. So tennis takes a swing at making players' earnings fairer. You can find that, again, on FT. That's financialtimes.com. So that was a great article. What else do we have? Again, uh, just a personification of the struggle for a player ranked outside the top 200, uh, Jan Chwinski, uh, the young German player, not necessarily young, but I should say 23, yeah, I guess he is young, he's younger than me, and I like to think I'm young, so the 23-year-old German uh, made 435 euros for finishing third at the Tennis Point Exhibition Series event that we all saw last weekend in Germany on Tennis Channel, and he talks about that's really his only income on the year, and you know, I think we can all understand you can't, you know, that's before taxes and $435 euros. uh, You can't live 12 months off 435 euros. I'm just, no one can do that. And so that's terrifying. It speaks to, you know, again, it's an example of the sort of struggle going on. And it was fascinating to read in SI.com that Rafa Nadal, when speaking of the structure, because again, there's so much uncertainty right now in tennis, not just of when it's going to come back, but what it's going to look like when it comes back. And because it's international are we going to have to focus on playing tennis regionally because travel is not going to be possible at that time? All of this is unknown. And Rafa Nadal in an interview said, you know, if he if it was up to him, he would scrap this season entirely and just resume tennis normally in 2021. Don't have a backlog of events in September, October, November, December, if possible. Just sort of reset everything moving forward into 2021. And he says, you know, I'm more concerned with the Australian Open uh, than with what happens later this year. I think 20. 20 has been practically lost. I'm hopeful of being able to start next year. He's like, and you know, he says, sadly, I'm not going to lie. The feeling is that we're losing a year of our lives. And he says at 33, 34, it's more valuable than at 20 when you have more time ahead. Uh, But, you know, he goes on to say it's just been confusing and it's hard. You know, it's not clear to him whether he can go practice or not. And, you know, it's not clear to him whether he should go into his club or not and whether that's legal or whether that's breaking the rules. And, you know, he's concerned that players will come back and because they haven't been practicing the way they normally do, they haven't been playing matches or been able to the way they normally are, that there will be injuries as well. So, you know, he thinks maybe it might just be better to reset the season completely and start off fresh again in 2021. And that's a fascinating perspective. And I'm certain that the later we get in the year without tennis, the more frequently people will begin to hear that perspective because, you know, it makes a lot of sense as opposed to trying to, well, I'm sure if you asked a player and said, hey, would you prefer things just reset in 2021 or would you want to play events and have a rushed ending to the year and a stressful, you know, uh, chaotic ending? And, you know, the majority of players would say, yes, let's play tennis because they need to and they want to make money. But the players at the top, the Federers, the Nadals, the Djokovic's, they don't want to do that to their bodies. They don't want to, you know, the stress, the uncertainty of, am I going to have to go to six different countries in a 12-week span? Can I do that safely? Am I going to have to play 12 straight weeks of tennis to keep my ranking up. Uh, so again, you want to know why there's not a labor union it's because they're competing interests always for those at the top of the game and those at the bottom. And that's just going to be another interesting storyline for us to monitor down the home stretch. 
And of course, we learned yesterday that, or I should say today, yesterday, when you're listening to this, that the French Open is going to push its start date back a week. It was scheduled to begin September 20th, now scheduled to begin September 27th. That means that ending will be October 11th, which happens to be the day that I had my bar mitzvah. So uh, it'll be, what do I turn, 25, so it'll be, what, the 12-year anniversary of that bar mitzvah? Bar mitzvah for my bar mitzvah, almost, uh, is that French Open final. So that was interesting news there back a week, of course. We've talked about this all week long, and another story emerged in Forbes today uh, that the USTA is considering every scenario for playing the 2020 U.S. Open, including the possibility of moving it to Indian Wells. We don't have to relitigate that, but just know that the more times you hear it in an article, the more serious it's clear those conversations are becoming. We also learned today that uh, you know there was another cancellation. The first edition of the new ATP Grass Tournament in Mallorca was scheduled to be this year, and it has officially not just been, uh, you know, uh, postponed but canceled and will resume hopefully June 19th to June 26th of 2021. And obviously that sucks because it would have been really cool to see that new event. And, you know, they tried to negotiate with the ATP to play it this year, but it just it's not going to happen, unfortunately. We did learn some news about the ITA Oracle Summer Circuit for all of you college tennis fans or parents of college tennis players out there or aspiring college tennis players. And, you know, while they are continuing to play, pay close attention to all the safety and health guidelines from local governments and the federal government, as well as in consultation with uh, the ITA, the NCAA, USTA Chief Medical Officer Brian Hanlon, uh, yeah, Hanlon, Excuse me. Uh, as of now, the plan is to continue to play the events, however, alongside and, you know, by abiding by the USTA's player tennis safety guidelines for players and facilities as well. What does that mean? It means it's going to be a different schedule, of course, and they're noting with the local clubs and facilities and tournament directors to figure out what places will be able to be played in and when that will be able to happen. But they say, look, no doubles for this event. It'll be singles only to uh, ensure that social distancing guidelines are enforced to ensure that the tournaments can be played safe. Uh, Of course, there are also different things in terms of... um, you know, what the matches are going to look like themselves and uh, just how frequent the events will be. But just know that as of now, the ITA Summer Circuit is planning on going on moving forward. And they're not the only ones. You know, we continue to see exhibition events pop up throughout the globe. We talked about the one in Germany last weekend. Another one scheduled potentially for Atlanta on May 14th. The Exo Tennis comes to the USA with 16 days of live tennis from the Epic Family Life Center. Players like Will Blumberg, Chris Eubank, Taylor Townsend, and more, uh, I believe, uh, all scheduled. I think McKenna Jones. Is that McKenna Jones? Am I right here? I think that's a photo of her. It is a photo of her, so a bunch of U.S. TA, uh, USTA, a bunch of college tennis players, excuse me, as well as uh, professionals coming to play this event. And again, at this point, I think we are all uh, in need of live tennis. So as long as they're doing it safely, as long as they're following health guidelines and no one's put at risk, we are all in favor of seeing that sort of tennis. Home stretch here for the news, just a couple things for you. Uh, you know, one stat and then two funky stories. Let's start with the statistic. Uh, at, at Anna K Forever, Oleg S ran the rankings and Per, per the open era rankings, there are currently 126 ranked players that have reached the top 50 in the ATP rankings. Of those 126, 120 of them broke the top 200 by age 22 or younger. Only six of them did it after the age of 22. In terms of those 126, again, 99 of them 
broke into the top 100 by the time they were 22 or younger. By the time they were 23 to 25, it was 20, older than 25, 7. Of the players in either of the oldest groups, only one would go on to reach the top 30, and that was Dan Evans, who hit his career high of the top 30 this year. So, again, has the prime uh, for tennis players extended or gotten older you know our tennis players getting better at older ages now is it now 25 to 31 25 to 29 maybe as opposed to that 23 to 28 that it used to be in the 90s for a player's prime yeah that's probably true but you still for most people if they're going to be good at tennis they're really good really early on and they break through pretty early as well so early results matters that's why we follow the next gen so closely here at cracked rackets and i just thought that was a really interesting stat so hey great shot to you at anna k underscore forever also, again, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but Novak Djokovic got in a little bit of trouble as he broke Spanish lockdown regulations to go play a little bit of tennis now. You know, this is from George Belshaw. The Marbella Hotel he was at actually ended up shouldering the blame for Djokovic. He posted a video of himself training on the court in Spain, despite there being a ban countrywide over the use of sports facilities. However, after getting in trouble, the it was the resort that ended up taking the blame. They said, "Hey, this is my." They are allowed to exercise by themselves or with a coach, but not on a tennis court. Uh, the Marbella Tennis Club said, "We received a request from Mr. Djokovic." Uh, where he trains habitually, understanding that from May 4th, all professional sports were authorized to train. He was permitted to train in our facilities. Uncertainties regarding the new ministerial order that was published were sent to the Spanish Tennis Federation, and subsequently they have confirmed that the use of the tennis club is not possible until May 11th. We are sorry that our interpretation of the regulation could have been erroneous, and this could have inconvenienced Mr. Djokovic or any other citizen acting in good faith. Nadal also spent time on the court on Monday, although he trained on a friend's court in the knowledge public courts are not to be accessed but has since been told that he is not to play the sport at all until next week amid fears that players could get injured and take up valuable medical resources it's i mean that's fascinating i i I don't even know what to say. It was a funky story. And again, all of you guys can go read it at metro.co.uk by George Belshaw, who talks about that, talks a little bit about the exhibitions in Germany as well. Yeah, that's a funky story. That's just that perfectly captures where we are at right now. And shout out to that hotel, though, for taking the blame. You know they're like, hey, we can't afford to lose Novak Djokovic's business. He comes and trains here all of the time. Uh, we'll take the L for this one, whether it was their fault or not. And good for Djokovic, by the way, uh, for, you know, uh, I not good for Djokovic, I suppose. But shout out to that Mirabella. Business comes first, right? Got to get that money. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to talk, and by the way, I'm not trying to make light of the situation. If your area isn't safe or health, uh, isn't safe yet to play outdoor tennis, if your local administrators and local government officials are saying don't play, don't play. Uh, but I'm just saying shout out to that hotel for ensuring that they maintain their business. We can have a little bit of light fun at the expense of that. I'm not trying to, you know, I, I think you all get the point there so I can move on. And the last thing I'm going to move on to, because whenever Reem Abulail writes a column, you know, I'm going to read it. She says the column from tennis to formula one, the virtual world has entered sports reality. And we talked about this a bunch last week, uh, seeing, uh, the various virtual events this Sunday, it was the stay at home slam put together by IMG last 
last week. It was the virtual Madrid Open. Tennis isn't the only sport that's doing that, but certainly if esports is going to catch on, now is its time. And it's fascinating to just hear the reception and read the reception from all of these various peoples, particularly generations that didn't grow up playing video games, just watching them watch the sport, seeing their reaction to the virtual tennis, whether they enjoy it or not. It's been a fascinating exercise to me. And of course, Reem never writes anything but fascinating articles, so be sure to go check out her work at thenational.ae as always. And if you've missed, by the way, any of the conversations we're having here at Cracked Rackets, be sure to go check them out as well because we have had a bunch of good ones as of late. We put a bow on the 2020 ITA Division I men's tennis season with this week's Great Shot podcast episode. Chris Halliors, Mastikoic, and I coming together one last time to discuss all Americans from the season and our reaction to those All-Americans that were named offer our top five teams for the season. Also name our ideal starting lineups, one through six singles, one through three doubles. Uh, and of course, we jaw at one another as well, as well as talk about the serious financial impact of the coronavirus on the future of college tennis. It's a fascinating conversation. It's always fun to get together with those guys. And of course, a huge shout out to all of you college tennis fans who have supported us here at Cracked Rackets throughout the year. You know, we go back two, three months ago, and I was making my play-by-play broadcast premiere, I suppose, at the college level when I got to do the Division I uh, women's uh, national indoor event. And so this was a special season for me for all sorts of different reasons. It was really fun to put a final bow on that season, and it's a conversation I know all of you will enjoy, and if you want to hear our conversations we've been having with college tennis players as of late, be sure to go check out the Cracked Interviews podcast, because we've talked to Brianna Schwetz and Elliot Spazieri, and last week on the mini-break, we actually talked to Will Blumberg when he was named an eight-time All-American, only the third Division I man to be named an eight-time All-American. Oh, we've had so many great guests as well, Tennessee men's tennis head coach Chris Woodruff, and we have a bunch of great podcasts from the college tennis world in our queue that we'll release over the next two weeks as well. I know Elliot Spaziri was released yesterday. I believe Gianni Ross of Virginia will be released tomorrow, so be on the lookout for all of that. And of course, uh, you know, for all of our podcasts, this one, the Cracked Interviews podcast, the Great Shot podcast, if you haven't already, like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends, any comments, criticism, feedback, any of you all have for us, we always appreciate hearing. So feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. For me personally, personally at Great Shot Podcast. Uh, speaking of that YouTube channel, you don't want to miss Overserved. You don't want to miss CR Classics. You don't want to miss any of the incredible content our super producer Daniel Westoff comes up with. So be sure to go check out that channel immediately. And by the way, shout out as always to those super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. None of this happens without their incredible hard work behind the scenes. It also wouldn't happen without our friends at Midwest Sports, who again for more than 20 years have served as one of the premier suppliers of tennis gear to all tennis players around the country. Uh, go to their website, MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15, 15% off all of your tennis gear needs. But with that being said, for our wonderful super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.